0: Everybody, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is episode 51 for Saturday, January 8th, 2011. Happy New Year, everybody. I am Paul Fox, and joining me as always from somewhere in the Fragrant Harbor is Mr. Kevin Ma.
1: Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year, Paul. Happy New Year, Kev. How's it going? Um, Pretty cold. How about you, Paul?
0: Yeah, it's been kind of chilly. Um, we are back. It's a new season, a new year. Got a lot of films from the holiday season to talk about, but before we get into
1: that, how was your holiday, Kevin? Um, it was pretty uneventful. Um, there was a huge DVD sale um, near the office before, just around Christmas time. So, I, I bought a lot of stuff. I bought four seasons of Lost on DVD. Um, bought a couple some some TV. Bought like eight, twelve movies because they were on for four for fifty dollars, Hong Kong.
0: Wow.
1: So, um been kind of going through a few of those and just because you know public holiday uh everybody goes out to the streets everybody goes out and, and and have fun and you know shopping whatever and there's a lot of tourists so um i like a little more quiet time and just kind of stay home and watch tv oh. and eat a lot
0: <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you were uh, playing santa for yourself
1: <laughs> i guess so to
0: speak yes yeah. i i i happened to come up some pretty good deals too while i was in the states um i hit uh, Best Buy and a couple other shops on the on the day after Christmas, and they had some really good sales. Got some Blu rays for like eight bucks. Um, well wow. Notable titles. Let's see: Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, House of Flying Daggers, Kung Fu Hustle, um, all the American releases. Mm. Um, they're all in a bargain bin for like eight bucks. Um, Final Fantasy Advent
1: Children. Bargain bin for Blu ray ready.
0: Yeah, it's you know it's uh, moving pretty fast. It's kind of weird when you see certain Blu-rays, you know, they're selling for less than $10 and then others are like in the thirty, you know, $20 to $30 price range.
1: With that, I got I got. thank you again for getting the uh, Scott Pilgrim Blu-ray for me in the States.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and all that good stuff. Um, well, I hope everybody had a nice holiday. I was fortunate enough to miss all the massive delays that people got caught up in in flying back and forth from the U.S., So we are back in Hong Kong, and we are here to talk about movies. So we've got some East Screen films to catch up with this time. Um, Up first is the latest film uh, from Patrick Kong, along with Wong Jing, called Marriage with a Liar. Now, Kevin, you haven't seen this, so I will do my best to... and give it a short summary and some of my thoughts on this. So this is a a Chrissy Chow vehicle. Um, Patrick Kong has decided to move on from staples like um, Steffi and Alex Fong and he's picking up Chrissy Chow. She's pretty much the biggest name in in this film in terms of the the main cast. Um, She plays a young girl named Kiki and right at the start of the movie Uh, We find Kiki waking up, and she looks next to her, and she's found that she's sleeping with a man who's not her fiancé, a man named Jack, and this is three days before uh, the wedding. She feels guilty, and uh, this in turn prompts an argument with her partner, Jerry, um, a young police officer, uh, played by Heem Law, who you might remember from See You and YouTube and uh, Happy Funeral, which then promotes prompts him to, after an encounter with a young girl named Bobo, um, have an affair with her. Bobo agrees to be Jerry's three-day girlfriend um, prior to his wedding. There's a lot of cheating, a whole lot of cheating going on. It, this is pretty much a staple for a Patrick Kong film. Um, almost all the themes that he works with, he t- tends to return to this notion of um, cheating, of you know, back, backup boyfriends, backup girlfriends, or infidelity in some way, shape, or form. The interesting thing here is like some of the levels that the characters stoop to. Um, So Chrissy Chow's character, Kiki, she has placed an app on her. Everybody has iPhones in this film. I guess they were a sponsor. She places an app on uh, Jerry's phone so she can track him. Um, Sort of a partner tracking app. And the theme that comes across here at one point is they say that You know, cheating is okay because basically you have to hurt the one you love uh, to prove that you love them because you'll feel so guilty after cheating on them that you'll treat them better. Um, This is sort of the rationale. But beyond this, the characters are pretty vapid. Um, It's all about, you know, style and clothing and uh, me, myself, and I pretty much. Um, You don't really care about any of them uh, of these four characters you don't really buy into their philosophy. And maybe younger people will. Uh, maybe I'm a, at a generation gap here. But um, the supporting characters of the film, you've got um, uh, Tommy Hong and a couple T, uh, TVB, uh, King Kong from TVB, and a couple other supporting characters who end up being far more interesting than the main characters. The big divergence here for Patrick Kong is that there's a lot of skin in this film. It's not a Category 3 film, but it's pretty close Um it's basic. There, there, there are several uh, scenes of the characters together where primarily the women are, are showing the skin more than the men. But Chrissy is really showing more than she's shown before. We don't have any full nudity here, but you're given a lot of side shots and a lot of shots that would be <coughs> reminiscent of perhaps Amy Yip in some of the stuff that you know she did in her career. Which really begs the question is is Chrissy aiming you know to to become the you know sort of the soft core starlet here with a with a move like this? And I wonder how much of this was Patrick Kong's influence and how much of it was Wong Jing's influence. I get the sense that Wong Jing was really uh, pushing for a lot more skin here. That seems a little bit more his style. Um, but other than that, there's the same old themes. They're the cinemat- cinematography is pretty bland. It repeats scenes that we've just seen moments before. Um, So the characters will have an encounter and then one character will go off and think uh, about that encounter and we'll see that encounter again. What? 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 Huh?
1: This Week in Subtitles.
0: And I had to pick out a subtitle of the week from this film and that is called, or or that is, Love is Like a Mixed Grill Plate. (laughs) for whatever that means. They explained it in the film, but I still didn't really understand it. But it's yet another film which is comparing love or relationships to food. I remember one, I can't remember what film it was from, but one where the guy was saying, "Oh, you know, I need to fool around because who wants to eat the same meal every day of their life for the rest of their life, right?" In a lot of ways, it's sort of building off of marriage with a liar or marriage with a fool one of patrick kong's earlier, earlier works but it's a bit more adult and that may appeal to some people you know maybe patrick kong's audience is getting a bit more adult and so they'll appreciate um so, some of the adult um scenes that are going on here but again not really a category three film not really interesting unless you're really interested in seeing bad people treat each other badly <laughs> So, moving on from Marriage with a Liar, uh, I think up next we've got a Japanese film to talk about. Is that right, Kevin?
1: That's right. It's the uh, latest um, film from Studio Ghibli, uh, more famous for the, the, the works of uh, director Hayao Miyazaki. Um, this, the latest one, is called The Bar Arrietty. Um Paul, do you want to go to it first, or do you want me to try um, you into it? Well, sure. Okay,
0: up? so this is, um, this is not an original title. It's based on a UK novel, I believe, uh, actually a, a series of novels. Um, it basically tells the story of of little people. Um, they're they're I guess they're kind of like fairies, but they don't fly. Um, but they live in this house. Um, they have a little house of their own, and sort of you know their day to day thing dealings is that they borrow stuff that won't be missed from the humans or the Human beings, as they're called in the story, the main character is sort of a very strong, willful girl named Arietti, and she is getting is come of age to where her father's training her to go out and start borrowing for the family things, you know, little things, cubes of sugar and things that typically won't be missed. In her first expedition, she encounters uh, a young boy who's moved to the area. Um, from the city. He's somewhat ill, and he's come to sort of recuperate before a big surgery um, that he's going to have undertaken. And he knows about these from his mother, these, these these little people, and so he's actively looking for them, and he wants to sort of befriend them, and that's <laughs> sort of against the rules of, of the little characters. They can't have any relationship with humans because it's considered dangerous. And so that sort of sets up the, you know, the, the basis of the story. Um, unfortunately, it's pretty much by the numbers for Ghibli studio style. You've got the headstrong female protagonist. You've got an individual here with an illness set in the countryside dealing with issues of extinction. Um, so there are a lot of similar themes to Ghibli films that have come before, but um, most prominently i was it really reminded me a lot of totoro you know because you've got um sort of this countryside area uh, in this house and um in that one the mother was sick and the daughters had gone out uh, to this area to stay um but this film doesn't really have any magic to it Uh, it lacks a sense of wonder Uh, i think that you can tell that this is not miyazaki directing it um suffers from a lot of the same problems I think that Earthsea had, in that they're really going out, when when they go after reinterpreting other works, they're not as strong, for whatever reason. It, I, I don't know if it's because they're using someone else's universe, or um, you know, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't have a sense of originality to it. I really wish they'd kind of stop this and just stick with doing sort of original stories rather than adaptations. Um and the film this film itself and i don't know I, I read a little bit about the novel um it does change some things from the novel but it doesn't really give a sense of accomplishment or closure uh so i kind of left the cinema wanting more um wanting to know well wait a minute what happened you know what 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 what's the point of everything um stylistically as you might expect it looks beautiful the the artwork is very great if you love 2d animation if you like um, studio Ghibli style you're gonna like what's being done here visually it's just really kind of lacking substance in terms of the narrative when compared with things like um, Princess Mononoke or Spirited Away or you know especially the earlier classics
1: well I I liked it a lot more than Earthsea. Um, Tales of Earthsea felt kind of self-absorbed, and um, there's a lot, of, you know, considering that it was directed by the son of Hayao Miyazaki, and uh, how publicly, um, how publicly Miyazaki, the father himself, was against the fact that his son is directing his movie, and how the film, the beginning of the film, is uh, the main character killing his father. And That kind of, kind of the whole self-absorbed and um, st- self-important style that I really hated in Tales of Earth uh, thankfully isn't here. Um Yazaki did write the script. Um so I guess that's maybe that's part of the deal. Um that's kind of why it didn't have that much uh that kind of thing. But I, I, I really like the simple characters. The simple story. Um it's really clear. There's very few characters. There's the, the tiny people family and then there's the the big people. I think maybe six characters at the most, seven characters. Um, and I don't mind. It's a very straightforward story. Um, it really does zip right by because, you know, a very clear th- uh, free act structure. The first 30 minutes does this, and then the next 30 minutes does a very clear thing. And the last 30 minutes, um, again, really clear. And I kind of liked that. I, I liked how simple it was. Um, I didn't mind how simple it was, in fact. Um, I, I like that. The, the lack of magic is replaced by that kind of sense of reality. It, it feels like it's totally credible for these little people to be running around our houses and 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 the little obstacles that they run into, you know, like like climbing down a kitchen counter and just how to how to how to transport a little cube of sugar and running through the little floorboards and things like that. I, I really like that. It's kind of like a mini adventure that you know you bring it back to our level it doesn't really mean much because the entire movie takes place within this house, but. To them it's like the entire world to them, and they're running uh, running around and just different different little levels and I like that I really like that um it, it kind of makes you appreciate the little things you know what I mean you're holding a little cell phone um tiny little cell phone to you that's nothing but to them there's like you know it's like this big 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 building to them or something uh and i and I like that to me that's that's fascinating to me that's kind of the magic of the movie um yeah, and a lot of familiar Miyazaki films, you know, like the um I saw some not really environmentalist stuff, but there's little bits of that. Uh, you know, keeping things the way they are. And you got like I said, the Totoro thing, the the uh second individual and um extinction, yeah, those kind of things. Uh you could see little bits of Miyazaki in there. Um, even though you could tell that, you know, it wasn't really his most ambitious work. It just it's, it, feel, it felt like something he could have written in a weekend, um, and but to to me that's okay because I really I was I was really enjoying the film as itself. I thought it was charming. Um, I wasn't really you know left in awe, but I liked it for ninety minutes that I was I, I was in the world, um, and again really much much better much bigger improvement. Uh, really a lot better than Tales of Earthsea. Um. And makes me kind of uh, interested to see what this director has to come up with next. Uh, maybe see what he would do without Miyazaki, without even maybe without Ghibli. Um, I, I know that I think that Miyazaki is trying to let other, other directors take over films as he is kind of stepping into retirement. So that's why the next Ghibli film is also directed by again his son. Um, so it's trying that these younger younger directors take on more work for the studio, um, and I think this, uh, this is a good attempt. At continuing the Studio Ghibli legacy,
0: I have heard that he's signed on to do two more films. Though,
1: have you heard the same? Um, I don't think he was signed on to do anything because it is his studio. Um, but all I know, as far as I know, projects for projects that are confirmed, uh, the one coming out next this year, I guess, uh, would be the one directed by Sun. So it would be the follow up to Tales of Earthsea. Mm. I just hope there won't be any more, uh, you know, petricide. Cause you know it's really not that it's re- it's really not hiding it that 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 well that, that how much how, how troubled the
0: relationship between those two are. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I'm, you know, again, I, you know, I'm happy for them to keep doing work. I just really wish they would not do adaptations of stuff um, because you know, Earthsea uh, was not really well received by a lot of fans of the Earthsea series, as I recall. I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know they did a. I think they did a live action adaptation too on the Sci-Fi Channel in the U.S., which was also not very great, from what I've heard, um, by fans of the of the novels. I, I don't know. It just seems like I'm. I'm more anxious for them to get back to doing you know sort of original stuff, more so than these adaptations.
1: Yeah, it seems like um, Ghibli. Ghibli doesn't really have. Um have much have a good relationship with with people that the the original authors of works they adapt um, for example it did when how is moving castle I mean Earthsea is famous for you know its author kind of uh, disowning the film and um and also for how moving castle um the the author also did not have any input or involvement uh, I'm not sure how the author felt about the film I think she was fairly um, positive about it but she did also acknowledge that the film was very different from the work um and the thing is a lot of japanese uh, i think fans of Japanese cinema will be a lot more used to you know adaptations because most films are adaptations um and i I've seen the the live action version of the borrowers actually I've seen it a long time ago it was made in you know, like nineteen mid nineties late nineties and it was a lot darker too kind of too much of that english i guess the british. How do I say? It was very dark. It was very brownish. It was kind of murky um, with a lot of dark comedy. And I I kind of prefer this kind of simple animated light, you know, Ghibli style instead. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I like the look of the film.
0: uh, One of the things that stuck out in my mind was the the attention they gave to the dollhouse and the things inside the dollhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, That seemed to... that seemed to be very much in the mindset of the director as something very important um did you get that sense i mean i was kind of like all right it's a nice little kitchen move on you know um but they were like oh look at the detail and you know the the, the little the little tea cups you can actually put tea in them and yeah you know
1: yeah that's, why, that's one of the things i liked about it you know how these little things all function as weird things, you know how do you notice when they're when the little people are, you know, pouring tea, they come down in drops instead of you know like a steady stream. Yeah. It, even the the whole physics of this whole thing at all, it, it, they really think about the little details. Um, and as for the dollhouse, I I like what it represented. It was because uh, remember in the film they talked about how it was um, the older owner yeah. built the dollhouse for the little people, and it's kind of you know that was really nice that you know you got humans that actually. Care it's a it's a good contrast to the quote unquote villain of the piece, um, who just wants to catch the little people. Does you got you got the little, you've got this this older people who believes in them and wants to coexist and even builds this thing for them. I I kind of like that little. I, I would like to see a movie where where you know the big people coexist with the with the little borrowers.
0: Yeah, and I think that uh, the, the, I wanted more of that too. It was just, um, you know, there it was it was there was no sense of that relationship at all it was mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. we've been discovered you know now we have to do this and then the whole rest of the film was doing that and there was no real resolution with i mean i and i i, I guess if you take the books further there is but there's no real resolution with the family and there's no real mm-hmm. resolution with the boy either you mm-hmm. know and that kind of left me cold and i i guess you know it it didn't seem to have the same kind of closure that we typically get in
1: other films from the studio. Mm, uh, I think I kind of know what you mean. Um, but for me, it is a very motivation, motivation-driven motivation plot, um, and maybe that's what it helps really go by quickly. It's a really light piece, and um, as far as what it is, just for what it is, a really light little piece of a 90-minute movie, I, I like for what it is.
0: To be fair, it probably didn't help that, I watched it immediately upon returning to Hong Kong. and was laden Mm. with jet lag, so. Mm. All right. Our next E Screen film for this week to catch up with is also from Japan, and that is the film called Norwegian Wood. Um, I haven't seen this film, Kevin, so it's all in your court.
1: Yeah. um, Thank you. Um, Norwegian Wood is the, um, adaptation of the, um, Haruki Murakami novel. um, It has long been thought uh, untranslatable to film because um, Murakami's the way Murakami writes is very heavy on voiceovers and um, it's a lot about. He has a lot of his other work are you know surreal kind of writing, and it's kind of hard to translate to the screen. And Norwegian Wood is his most successful work um, in Japan. Um, It's also my favorite of the Murakami works. Um, So. You could kind of see what kind of expectation I had, because I waited years for, for someone to bring for bring this book to life. Um and the person to do is on Tran. Uh Hon Tran is a Vietnamese director who who made films like a uh, Scent of the Green Papaya, uh Cyclo. And last he did was the last film he did was I Come of the Rain. This uh crazy little movie starring uh some of the biggest star, male stars in Asia Also half shot in Hong Kong And just absolutely crazy It's the only film I've seen from the director So um, obviously you could see why I was a little hesitant about You know, maybe lifting my expectation for Norwegian Wood um, The film stars uh, Kennedy Matsuyama From the Death Note movies As the protagonist uh, Watanabe um the film chronicles his life in nineteen sixties, um, in um in Tokyo in a Tokyo University. And uh his relationship with two women. Um a woman from his past named Naoko, um, who is mentally unstable uh, after after her boyfriend and who is also uh Watanabe's best friend, uh commits suicide, um when just about when they leave high school. And um and their relationship with uh Midori, um girl that Watanabe meets in university and uh it's kind of like the other side of the coin when it comes uh when compared to Naoko uh, a kind of uplifting kind of um very high spirit girl um so he has to choose between two of them meanwhile of course it's the 60s so and he's in a big city so he also has a lot of sex um the film version is very pretty um, of course naturally with the book, you know, having very long and, and, and a lot of characters and a lot of um and a lot of pages. Obviously you can't you can't translate everything to the film. But um my biggest problem with the film version is that not only does it really take out some of the more lighter aspects of the story, like um the whole the whole side plot about uh, Watanabe's roommate, um, who is nicknamed Stormtrooper, uh, a lot of his scenes are taken out um and also the film changes certain scenes certain moments uh some of them are one of my some of my favorite moments. They change them to kind of fit the very sober tone throughout the film. The whole film is very dark it's depressing, and there's um because the whole film deals with depression and death and you know regret and all that kind of stuff um so the film is very depressing it's very sober it's um it's slow. And, um, you know, for a fan of the book, you know, as I'm watching, I know how it's going to do and I like to see how it unfolds. So it's, it was perfectly fine for me, the the, the way the film is, uh, is done. But my problem is when they're changing certain moments in the book to give it an entirely different tone in the film, um, that was really my biggest problem. Um, I don't mind them taking out certain things. You know, Stormtrooper being gone, that's fine. But when you're changing the tone, you know, to. To make it even more depressing than the book is already is, you know, that's really my biggest problem. It's so it's so crushed by his pessimism. Um that it kind of ruins the, the the appeal of the book. Um for example, Midori is a lot more is a lot more, you know, like I said, a lot more uplifting character. She's a lot more perky. Um I never really I can't really imagine, you know, an actress playing her, but I could at least imagine the way an actress would be playing her. But that is completely changed here again uh, in the film. It just Midori comes off really strange. Um, but let's let's get away from the book for a sec. Um, the film is really beautifully shot. Uh, it's shot by Li Ping-Bing, who was uh, one of the two cinematographers on *In the Mood for Love*. He also shot um, uh, most of, uh, I think, if not all of uh, Ho Hsiao-hsien movies. So obviously, it's very pretty. Uh, even though he has, he he did complain publicly about having to shoot in digital uh, during the production. Um, and then the actors that do the best, Ken, Kenji Matsuyama is fine, uh, playing kind of this really introverted character. Um, he's always been good at, I guess, at intro either really introverted characters or really, really big, exploded, exploding characters, kind of like Detroit Metal City. Um, Ringo Kikuchi is also fine as Naoko. Um, her voice, uh, wasn't really what I expected to be, what I expected now to be. But again, that's really because of my my own bias uh, coming in from having read the novel. Um, The actress who plays Midori, I can't really think of her name right now. Um, Could have been... She was fine again. She's like a first-time actress. She was a model. Uh, She's fine on the film's terms. But again, you know, really different character than how I imagined in the book. Um, And really... Again, the problem is the ch- the charms of these characters are are totally gone. You don't know much about their background anymore, and they just kind of go through the motions. It just it just feels like they're checking off lists from the book. Um, as a film as, on its own, it doesn't really engage because again, a lot of the backstory back is gone. Uh, a lot of the things that make them likable or make them make us attract as a fans uh, attracted to these characters in the book, they're all gone. So in the film, there's not much certain moments that show up. And if you if you read the book, you know where they're coming from? But if you haven't, then they just kind of there. Um, so those who, who have never read the book and watched the movie, they they may not really get the appeal uh, of the story, you know, why it has it 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 has touched so many people, or why it has attracted so many fans in Japan. It's one of the most it's, it's a really hugely popular book in Japan. Um, there there was a certain scene in the end, this is one of the scenes where they changed the events from the book. Um, or to change the tone of the book of that scene, and they they brought it to the movie in a different tone. But when it came out, I heard some people laughing in the back, and you know that moment that those people in the back never read the book, because not only has the tone been changed, um, it also kind of is, you you won't understand it if you're just watching the film. Um, And that kind of sums up, you know, Norwegian was a film. Um, It's a good Thing to satisfy curiosity for those who who are Murakami fans, but other than that, um, you know, people who go in cold, completely cold, not knowing what to expect, they may be either bored or or they just would see really they just see as a, a 132 minutes of a lot of pretty images. Uh, uh,
0: again, I haven't seen the film, but as I understand it, the novel is extremely popular in Japan, mm-hmm. um, and but this is the only uh, adaptation that there's been it hasn't been made into a tv drama or a manga or any other other
1: form no again it's been it's been long considered untranslatable because of its nature it's just um again the whole movie is driven by voiceovers um it it is very episodic and um i think the film tried to take up the episodic nature It kind of made it like a try to make it one one narrative but um yeah, it doesn't really translate the, the the narrative well enough into film form. Um, what I've heard is that 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 Murakami did um, work on the script, or or he didn't write the script, but he 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 input it, he he gave certain inputs to the script. So this is this is a Murakami approved version of the story. But um, no, I have not seen even after this adaptation, I haven't seen anyone. The only film that I've seen done Murakami works right, and his work hasn't been hasn't been readapted to film since uh, until Tony Takitani in 2004 2005 and that movie really carried the, the, the style or the the feel of a Murakami story on the film
0: so what would be your recommendation to someone um, read the book
1: or see the film read the book first then see the film really if you if you've seen the film already then read the book either way read the book alright
0: it's time to move on to talk about some of our west screen films that uh, we caught up with over the past holiday season uh, up first Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part 1 or Harry Potter 7 part 1 as some might call it so Kevin you have not seen this nope do you plan nope. to see it?
1: Um, I might see it someday I mean I like the Harry Potter films well enough but I just couldn't get myself to to this until I guess maybe DVD <laughs>
0: Um, all right, well, I'll give a brief summary. I mean, if you haven't seen Harry Potter up to now, uh, you probably don't want to, you're probably not going to go and see this. (laughs) And, uh, you know, one of the things I'll say, I'll give credit to the film for is there's no attempt to summarize or play catch up with this being the last volume. Um, so if somebody is going in and sort of watching this film and having not seen any, I can't imagine, but I, there might be somebody, um, not having seen any of the others or know what's going on up to this point, they're really going to be kind of lost. Um, but, you know, there's a lot to tell here. They broke the book into two parts. It was a pretty big book, so I'm I'm not still not sure if I'm happy with them doing that. I'll have to wait and see the second half, I guess. Um, so this is the story where Voldemort has... Um, Fully returned with his Death Eaters. Um, they've taken control in much of the magical world and have started exerting their force in the real world as well. Um, and Harry Potter and his friends, Hermione and Ron, find themselves on the run uh, to avoid Voldemort's grasp. Um, Harry is still considered very important, and the three decide to go off on their own and start finding. Um, the rest of the horcruxes, which are supposed to be these aspects of Voldemort, which will make him vulnerable. And in doing so, they uncover this mystery about these objects called the Deathly Hollows. And so there's a lot of chasing going on. There's a lot of intrigue, um, some sneaking around. I was really surprised. Um, I I didn't think this was going to be an interesting movie because Much of the book is basically the three characters out in the woods, kind of hiding out in tents. Um, And in the the book, as I was reading this, I was thinking, well, in the movie, this is gonna, you know, there's a lot of character um, discussion going on here, but in terms of visual stuff, it's gonna be kind of dull, you know, visually. But they managed to pull it off kind of, kind of well. They throw in a couple things that aren't really in the book in a few places. And I think, overall, it it, kind of works. I I enjoyed the film. Um, The big problem, though, is at a point it does end. But the story hasn't ended. And so the film does lack structure. um, Because there's a climax, but it's not the climax of the book. So the way they kind of work it in, it leaves you hanging. And it leaves you feeling kind of unfulfilled. And they didn't do what I was expecting. I was expecting, because... The the second part is being released in a few months. Um, they're doing this in a similar way to they did with uh, Back to the Future 2 and 3, where they were filmed together, <clears throat> and they were split apart. But Back to the Future 2 was very much uh, a solid film in and of itself, whereas this, I feel, really isn't. It it, it doesn't really give you a sense of accomplishment. You're still waiting for, for things to happen. And in Back to the Future 2... Right at the end, they gave you the preview of three of what was to come. They didn't do that here, which mm-hmm. I kind of expected they would. I was a little bit surprised. Um, that being said, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, if you're a Potter fan, you've seen it, you're going to see it, you've got to see it. Um, but I think, overall, this will work much better on DVD when you've got both parts to sit and watch through together. Um, still, I'm very excited to see the conclusion. Um, it's very dark though. I mean, really dark. This is the darkest of the films. If you've got kids, don't take them to see this. I mean, it's not rated R, but it's still pretty, it's got some pretty intense and, and heavy stuff um, that's going on. People dying, um, which is fine for the kids, you know, who started with Harry in the first movie, because now they're adults, you know, They've worked through up to this point, but if you've got a kid yourself and you're thinking, oh, "I'm going to take him, you know, eight-year-old to see uh, this Harry Potter movie," I'd say wait. I'd say let them work through each of the movie, each of the movies year by year, because yeah, this is a really, really dark film. Um, this is not anything like what we see in the very first um, Harry Potter world. Um, so, a must see for Potter fans. Again, I think it probably work a little bit better on DVD when you've got everything,
1: uh, both parts, to watch at once. How's it compared to um, the the second film? I remember the second film I, I saw in the theater. I was in college, and even then, I was freaked out because you know it was it was uh, part of it was very much like a horror film at points. Yeah, like um, the, the second the
0: film was kind of scary. You had the big uh, what was it, the basilisk or the yeah the spider those, and the, the snakes, the yeah. snake. Yeah, I mean they've had scary elements all throughout, but in terms of like people really dying things like torture, um, you know, just evil having a grip on everything, um, and chaos, and this is, it really comes to a head here, Um, and each film has gotten a little bit progressively darker, um, particularly in the cinematography and the way things are depicted, the world, I think that in a sense kind of represents the world, you know, the return of Voldemort, and you know, the rise of evil and everything. So you you don't have this like, you know, the th- the first film stands out in my mind is still the best because you go in and it's like this whole brand new magical world that you're introduced through, through Harry's eyes and everything's bright and colorful and, and, and just magical. And now it's like, that's all been thrown out. Everything's about war and, and chaos and, um, you know, people turning on each other. And, um, so yeah, it's a lot heavier and it's a lot darker. Alright, our next film from the holiday season for West Screen is Tron Legacy, another sequel. Um, Kevin, you want to take us through a little bit of this?
1: Sure. Um, I haven't seen the first Tron, but, uh, you know, there's, I always remember the really good, there's a really good parody of it in The Simpsons, uh Halloween episode, I think, where Homer jumps into a 3D world, uh, kind of like The Grid, and then he asks, uh, is it... Is it Ask. They ask him what what the world is like, and he goes, "Has anyone seen Tron?" And everyone says, "No, no, 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 no." Yes. Oh, I mean, no. Did anyone see the movie Tron? No. 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 Yes. I'm. I mean, no. No. Um. And that kind of reminds me of what how we are going to Tron Legacy here. Um. This movie, I think, comes what 25 years after the first film, I think the first film came before I was born. Um, and I still haven't seen the first film, but it it was supposedly quite a groundbreaking, um, for its time about, um, the story about people in a, in a virtual world and, uh, defeating virtual enemies, things like that. And I'm sure it was really fascinating in 1983. Um, this, all these ideas, uh, you know about being hooked into like a virtual world and things like that. But what's the point, Twenty-five years later, when we're a decade into the internet, you know, when we're doing the show over the internet, when we're everyone's getting information from the internet, everyone is hooked on, is wired in already. Um, so I don't really see the relevance of the sequel. But anyway, they made it. They spent one hundred seventy-five million million dollars on it, and it looks great. Um, the story is about the son of the uh main character of the first film Kevin Flynn um it, they they this um they they set up a story in 1987 where Kevin Flynn played by Jeff Bridges um in his CGI'd young face has uh disappeared into his his own I has disappeared um and 20 years later or 15 years later the son is now living off the grid just uh just like you know um, what's his name was uh, Connor was doing in Terminator Four, and I guess many people in these post-apocalyptic movie are doing living off the grid in a parking lot, um, off off from the real world. Um, and then suddenly, the, the his uh, his father's best friend receives uh, a page um, from the old family arcade, which has been left empty, vacant for about you know for as long as uh, Kevin Flynn has disappeared. So the son decides to go. Into the arcade and check out what's happening, and he accidentally gets himself into the world, uh, and in it, you know, um, it's been taken over by by this uh, bot, I suppose, um, who who looks exactly like the young Jeff Bridges, except it's not Jeff Bridges. Uh, and after a series of games and and competitions, he he finds out that his his father, his real father, has been living. Um, I guess in the outskirts of this virtual world uh, Kind of imprisoned By, by this bot uh, So then the rest of the movie is about How the son gets, tries to get the father out of the world And uh, without getting Getting the information taken from The the evil bot Who apparently is aiming to get out into the real world Does this people from the real world Has been going into the world um, Into this virtual world um, And that's pretty much Oh, for the, for the plot, It's a very simple story. Um, the you know, as you can expect from a 175 million dollar movie, the visuals are, are great. The visuals are great. I saw this movie in 3D. Uh, I did not watch it on IMAX. Um, even though I think about 40 minutes of the film was done for IMAX, I have I haven't seen I didn't see it in IMAX, but the 3Ds look fine. Um, the visuals as dark as it is, the whole movie takes place seems to take place at night because I guess that's what the world looks like. Um, it's really dark, uh, visual-wise. Um, special effects are great, though. Um, the music, which is the the entire score, is done by Daft Punk, the French techno group, and they were great. In fact, um, they showed up in one scene as kind of DJ of a club, and I thought they were the best actors in the movie. Um, but the thing is, nothing. The, all the cool visual stuff, the 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 the, the race, the life cycle race, and the. Um, the frisbee throwing um, that you see in the trailers—it all happened the first hour of the film, and after that, it it kind of goes back to its on the run, gotta get to a point A to point B narrative, and it, not much really happens after that halfway point. Um, so then then you got rely the actors, and then you have Jeff Bridges who um who's playing a CG who has his one he has a CGI faced, um and you know that looks nice. Uh, some of it. A point it looks kind of fake, but you know, he really does. Jeff Bridges is really doing a lot work, a lot more work on the film than than one might suggest, because he shows up as not only his old self, but he also shows up as the villain. So but he he really is the lead actor in the film, and you know, he's fine except um for the fact except for the fact that he the older version of himself, he's kind of playing uh the dude in Tron. Uh, it's like the, the big Lebowski character in Tron because he's kind of a hippie and he's talking about, you know, his line, there's a line there where he says, uh, bio digital jazz, man. And that was like my favorite line of the whole film, but for the wrong reasons. Um, and he also meditates at one point. Uh, so it's just really weird to, to watch this kind of 70s hippie um, that, you know, Jeff Bridges have made. He made a lot of fans, new fans on the nineties with with the dude and then him him, you know, kind of doing it in this, you know, big budget sci-fi film. And uh, it's both distracting and kind of really good for camp value in the first at the same time. Um meanwhile the lead actor um who excuse me because I didn't look for his name, uh is a relatively new actor and he does fine. He does he, he he's okay for what he's given. But again, the story again, because it's so' it's so single minded and it is so so um concentrated in in carrying the characters from point A to point b and and overwhelming him from with all the special effects that he doesn't really do much I mean I know he's supposed to carry on the franchise, but um he's not really that interesting of a character to carry the franchise um just like how John Connor was never really meant to carry on the Terminator franchise. But he he, he was kind of... Um, he he kind of has to anyway because you have to shift. You have to... The actors just won't stay around. Um, as for the ideas itself, the, there's not much ideas in the film for me. Um, there are kind of these new sort of sci-fi ideas about the uh, organisms that kind of show up on its own in the Tron world. Uh, that's somewhat interesting, but... It's really doesn't really. It's hard to give new ideas anymore when, when technology has gone as far as it has. Um, so it's hard to really be anything as groundbreaking as the first film, and sadly, it's not. Um, the The coolest idea of the film is uh, the visual is how the film starts out as two D in the real world, and then when the the lead character goes Sam Flynn, when he goes into the the Tron world. Um, the whole film goes into 3D. And that's really the coolest idea the film has, sadly. Um, again, I don't want to undermine the technical achievements of the film. Uh, they're really great. The special effects are great. The, the visuals are great. Uh, the music is great. But they just, they're just not going to replace the need for real characters, the need for stories, the need for ideas. Um, and they don't hear. So, Paul, um, what do you think? You're a big sci-fi sci-fi fan, so I look yeah. forward to it
0: and curse you for being so young that you weren't born before <laughs> the original. Uh, I, you know, I saw the original in the cinema, and it, for my generation, it was a, it was it was a pretty defining film. Um, it's one that sits in sort of sci-fi history for myself and uh, many of my friends of my generation. I was so excited about this film, and that I knew that was a problem going in, um, because when you're so excited about something. You're, you know, you put yourself, you know, something in high regard and you're going to fall that much further when it comes out to be pretty bad. Which, unfortunately, I felt this was. Um, it was visually stunning, but it was just a really bad narrative. Um, and as I saw it, this film was more of a remake, more of a reimagining than of the original film than a sequel in and of itself because it's basically got all the same elements that the original had you know the original tron set up these concepts about cyberspace you know what you would call the grid before we had internet you know this was back in the early 80s before people were you know even on things like aol and it had this concept you know that what if programs operated like people and you know what would happen if a person got sucked into this world. And I expected the film to reflect changes because between then, when they made the film, you can go back and you can watch the original, and and a lot of people probably won't because it's old, it looks really dated, you know, the effects were revolutionary for the time, but they don't really hold up um, because it was right at the very beginning of computer effects. And I watched it with Gia, and she said, oh, you know, that was... That was damn boring. And then we saw, went and saw the sequel the next day, and she said, that was even more boring. <laughs> um, so she had a hard time really getting into it. Uh, but the original was really, for its day, was really setting up this, this interesting concept. And so everything that's happened since then, you know, the way that video games have evolved, the way that the Internet's evolved, the way that people... Operate in cyberspace has evolved. All these, you've had all these massive changes. And I was thinking, how is the Tron world going to have evolved in this time? What are they going to show us? What are we going to see? They didn't show us anything new. Nothing's changed. Um, the graphics have changed, but that's it. Um, and everything we get in the story is the same. There's a program that's forcing other programs to either convert or to fight in, you know, these video game battles using light cycles and, and and things like that. Well, hey, that's exactly what was happening in the first film. They stylized it a little bit, but it didn't really look like the, you know, the, the way people looked looked more like a reimagining. It didn't look like they evolved from the way characters looked in the 1980s movie. And you might look and say, yeah, it's a lot more cooler now, and it's more leather esque and everything, and that's fine. But it really didn't seem to have a connection for me. And then there's the whole thing at the techno rave club, you know, which was like, you know, and then Jeff Bridges or or Flynn's spa (coughs) hideaway. Those didn't seem like they belonged either. I don't know. It was just it. It really didn't seem like um, it was an evolution from the original film. It seemed like somebody came in and said, well, this is how I would have made. Uh, a story about people going into a space where video games are being played and and programs are, you know, forcing other programs to do stuff. Um, So, you know, and even the scene where they stow away on the solar sail ship, you know, that hasn't changed. I mean, the sail ships look a little bit different. The graphics got better on that, but they did the same thing. They stowed away on a sailor ship in the first film. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it was a lot of reinterpretation for me. Um, and then you have the thing you mentioned, the, the, the thing about the organisms evolving, that was like from out and left field. Um, mm. It really didn't seem to belong. Jeff Bridges, yeah, he was for the most part channeling the dude, which was not <laughs> a character that he had come up with when he played Kevin Flynn originally. So it was like he, he didn't seem to be the same character. He, you know, which is fine. you know, it's, it's his interpretation. It just everything seemed off. The, the good things were, they got Bruce Boxleitner in it. He came back as Alan. Um, he makes an appearance as Tron. I mean, the film is called Tron. Um, so I was I was like, well, if it doesn't have Tron in it, why are they calling it Tron? <laughs> so, you know, he's he's there. There's a lot of back history that's, that's shown, and they do the thing with the regression of faces. There are some really good references to the original. This may be slightly on spoiler territory for some people, but, you know, the program that Kevin Flynn creates... Um, is called Clue, and the program that, the original hacker program that he created in the very beginning of the first Tron, that was captured and, and, and killed by the master control program, was also called Clue, so I think that, w- I thought that was kind of a nice, you know, reference to the original film, and there were other things, um, the garage that the son is staying in is called Dumont, and Dumont was one of the key programs in the first Tron, and uh Dillinger's son I really expected Dillinger's son to have a bigger bigger part you know uh, they kind of just threw his name out there and um I was like okay he's gonna have something to do with this and maybe they're planning on that for sequels I don't know um I think this film is still worth seeing just because the visuals are so nice and they threw so much money at it it does look good um if you go in with the proper mindset which I didn't have at the time. so I was really disappointed with, um, with what they did. But I think if I watched it again, with you know, knowing what I know now, that it'd probably just go in and let it wash over me and I'd appreciate it a lot more. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I was really kind of disappointed with the, the lack of what they did with the narrative. It was just basically reinterpretation. listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. Alright, our last film we're going to talk about um, from the holiday season is Jack Black's Gulliver's Travels.
1: Now, have you seen this, Kev? No, no, I missed out on it. and uh, it sounds like I'm glad to be missing out on it. Yeah,
0: you didn't miss much. Um, Gulliver's Travels, what can you say? It's a classic story. Most people probably know it. They've probably seen one of the earlier films or incarnations of it. They probably had to read the book, you know, when they are in high school or secondary school. The classic story of a young man who gets caught up out at sea, and he winds up on the Isle of Lilliput, surrounded by little people. So here's another story, story um, much like the, the borrowers or borrower variety, um, about little people. So this, you know, to understand the thing about this story is when it was written, um, it was written at a time where you couldn't really be critical of governments and ministries and things um, without doing it very subtly. And so the original story is very subtle, has very subtle pokes at the government of the day. Um, you know, for for the period, and I was really expecting this to kind of, you know, be sort of a modern update of that, and it didn't really do that, Um, but basically you have uh, Jack Black, who's playing himself, as he normally does, Um, but he's a mailroom attendant at this business, and he's never really gotten anywhere in 10 years. And he, he really likes one of the field reporters who w- works in the company, but he's never had the courage to talk to her or to sort of, you know, approach anyone or try and better his position. And so he ends up one day, um, you know, going into her office, and he he says, you know, he he, he wants to ask her out, but instead he says he's going to, you know, take take an assignment. And so she's impressed by his, you know, his bravado and his boldness. And so she gives him the assignment provided he provides a writing sample, which he plagiarizes um, off of the internet. And, but she gives him the assignment and he has to go out um, into the Bermuda Triangle on this. He's kind of working for uh, a travel company and he's doing travel writing. Um, so he goes out and he gets caught up in the ship sea storm and his ship gets wrecked and he ends up on the Isle of Lilliput. And um, then you have the classic imagery of the Lilliputians, you know, pegging him down to the beach. And um, over time, he wins over the Lilliputians with the exception of uh, one general. And uh, But he's very much self- self-absorbed and this ultimately yeah. comes back to um, make everybody realize that he's not as great as they all think he is, and so he has to sort of reinvent himself and find himself. And he has the traditional adventures of Gulliver, the the fight with the other kingdom, uh, putting out the fire on the castle. That that was one thing that I didn't think they were going to do because I I've seen other versions um, where the the classic scene where he puts out the fire, um, he pees on the castle. And he ends up peeing on the king, and of course that was a subtle commentary um, back in the day. And I thought, well, are they going to do that here? And and they did because I, I remember I saw a movie, one of the one of, the, can't remember which one, but they didn't do it. I think they they did something else. He ended up like spitting water on the king or something. Um, but they they did that here. They did the 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 real version uh, as it is in the book, um, and it got you know a few laughs and. Later, he ends up on an island where he's the little person, and he becomes basically this little doll in a dollhouse, and he has to be rescued. And ultimately, the woman he likes, she ends up coming to the island, and that's where the story kind of diverges. And um, there's a there's a period where the little are at war with this, you know, these other people, and uh, Jack Black decides he's going to settle the dispute by singing the song "War." What is it good for? Um, and he sings the whole song, you know, and I know that Jack Black's a good entertainer. You know, he's, he has, he has his Tenacious D band and they actually do songs, but that song didn't really seem to fit here. Um, I was kind of like looking at my watch thinking, uh, get on with it, get on with it. Um, <clears throat> I really wanted to like this, but I was just really bored. Um, the characters weren't that interesting. Jack Black was just being Jack Black, which just can be hit or miss. Um... A lot of people seemed like they were just phoning it in. I was really surprised that they released this in the States as a Christmas Day release. I was expecting it to be a lot better, and it just wasn't. Um, they had a really good opportunity to do more commentary, I think, on the social and political systems of the day. Instead, um, a lot of what happens, the changes that end up happening, happening in Lilliput um, are more of a social commentary on pop culture. And I didn't think that was as strong as it could have been. Um, I mean, it's got some nice moments, but overall, it, you know, it's something that you could probably wait for on to see on cable or pick it up if you get a free coupon to rent or something. Um, but, yeah, overall kind of disappointing. And I, I do like Jack Black in some of the stuff he does.
1: So it's Jack Black pretty much playing himself in the film? Yeah. Is it pretty it's much ex- his personality? It's exactly him being himself.
0: Like, you've seen him... Yeah. Do and other stuff. Um, he's not really stretching here at all. Yeah.
1: The, the thing is, even the trailer didn't really make me laugh. If if your trailer of your Jack Black movie can't get a, can't get any laughs, I think that's why it it failed in the states. Because I think everyone's seen the Jack Black shtick, and if it didn't, it can't make them even laugh in the trailer. Then there's no point in watching it.
0: Yeah, and I think that the, the big problem is too that um, the the effects are just not very good um you know even though we're in you know 2011 now um they relied heavily on digital effects they just a lot of it didn't really look that realistic there's a scene where he's like walking out to meet the warships of the other kingdom and you know there's uh he's he's causing you know wake and waves and everything it just looked really fake um and you know i was talking with somebody else about movies where they have Big people and little people, and one of my favorite films t- today, even even now, is um, Disney's film *Darby O'Gill and the Little People*, um, which was done like back when Sean Connery was b- very young, before he was doing James Bond, I think. And they did, you know, they did did it all through camera techniques and and sort of old style effects, but. You know, that film, in terms of depiction of big people and little people and the stuff they did, looks as good as the stuff they were doing here with all these fancy digital effects. And, um, I don't know, you just think that they would know better by now um, than to kind of try and do this kind of stuff on the cheap. So, yeah, it's, it was disappointing. I was hoping it would be a lot better because I really like the story of Gulliver's Travels. You know, it's classic. All right, I think that's going to wrap things up for our episode this week. Um, we'll be back next time to talk about all the newest stuff coming out in Hong Kong and Hollywood for the new year. Um, we've already seen a couple things, and we'll be hopefully caught up by our next episode. Um, as always, you can follow us over on the website at www.kongcast.com. Um, <clears throat> You can find us on iTunes. You can leave us some iTunes comments. Oh, comments. Uh, a couple comments over on the website from our last episode that I just thought I'd uh, take mention of. Um, Tin Lan Lau, also known as uh, Gary, said he saw Scott Pilgrim and he loved it. Um, we talked about Scott Pilgrim on the last episode. And he said, uh, growing, uh, being from Toronto, he actually recognized uh, some of the familiar spots from the movie. Um, Matt S. also wrote in, he said, uh, the Cookie Monster and SNL thing that we were talking about last time, um, was a send-up of the campaign to get Betty White to host the show, which I didn't know. Um, but yeah, uh, they actually got Cookie Monster on, on the, I think the last episode of SNL before the break, where they were, had, uh, Jeff Bridges on, and Cookie Monster sang a duet with Jeff Bridges, which was actually pretty good, um, in the opening monologue, so... I got a chance to see that when I was in the States. So, And uh, Hong Kong Dave says, I had to register again. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I was doing some work on the site. I don't know what happened. Uh, seems like everybody had to register. If you did have to register on the site again, I do apologize. I don't know if I turned something off or because we went into the new year, it's set to make everybody register again. Um, but I do apologize for the inconvenience. Um, and yeah, hopefully... The site will be much more smooth in 2011 than it was in 2010. You can also follow us on Twitter. Um, my Twitter is Foxlore, and Kevin's Twitter is the Golden Rock. That's one word. Um, where else can they find you, Mr. Ma?
1: Okay. Um, well, you can't find me through a blog anymore, but you can read my work at the blog at Uh, on lovehkfilm.com. uh You can find me on the homepage. I am the Golden Rock. Uh, you can email me at thegoldenrock at gmail.com uh you can throw any hate mail to um to to paul actually not to me but um you can also read my twitter as paul mentioned earlier you can see my uh review work www.ypmovies.com.hk uh look for the english site and i do write stuff there once in a while um and how else? I have so many things going on. You can look for me on YesAsia. Um, I do in, work in the Yumcha section um, under the pen name Rockman. Um, other than that, I think that's about it. But mostly, yeah, just you can email me at goldenrock at gmail.com because I've turned off the comment section in the blog while I've been updating them lately. So, All right.
0: Also, I'd like to throw out a big thanks to Rob G over at Schnauzer Studios for composing our new 2011 theme for us. I'm very happy with the work that he did for us, and I hope you guys like it. So until next time, we will wish you good viewing, and we'll see you then.
1: Bow digital jazz, man.
0: You know, he had another line in there. What did he say? Um, he said, you're ruining my zen. Yeah, you're, you're messing up my zen thing. It's like, who <laughs> says that to their son? You know, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's...
1: Uh, ah. It was awesome.
0: And is there any truth to the rumor that you're going to be an extra in Sex and Zen 3D Part 2?
1: Well, I'm going to be a star. <laughs> Yeah, you can buy a ticket, see me. Uh remind I, will me to avoid like, I will be the guy who looks like I'll be the guy who looks like Elvis Trey.
0: Yeah, remind me to avoid that.
1: <laughs> At uh YP dot com. I think movies.yp.com.hk Um I have to double check that, but uh sorry, give me a second. You gotta edit this out. Yeah, um looks like you'll have to Oh no, it's dot uh, www.yp. Give me a second, Paul, sorry. Ah,
0: ah, ah, ah.